Thanks everyone for joining episode three of the Staking Defense podcast. I'm Chris Remus, your host. What I hope to do with this podcast is discuss issues in the proof of stake validator community that really resonate with smaller validator operators. And I also do that in the hope of helping smaller validator operators not just survive, but also thrive in these early days of staking. It's been my experience operating validators for the past couple of years, at least now that staking, you know, is in many ways at risk of becoming centralized or not getting decentralized, depending how you look at it. And one of the ways I'm trying to help counter that is by providing a platform for smaller validator operators to have a bigger voice. So thanks for joining. And with that, I'm feeling excited to have David Campbell join me for episode three. Welcome, David. And if you could introduce yourself, I'd appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. Really excited to be here. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to uh, see what you've done with the mission of promoting the voice of the independent validators. That's, that's something near and dear to my heart. Uh, so as you mentioned, my name is David Campbell. Everyone calls me DC. Uh, I am the chief operating officer at the Electric Coin Company, uh, which is the company that brought the Zcash cryptocurrency into the world uh, almost four years ago. Uh, prior to that, I was the chief security officer for SendGrid, which is a cloud-based email infrastructure provider. Uh, and prior to that, I founded a, a number of different startups, uh, all of which were focused in the domain of information security and privacy. So uh, my, my draw into the cryptocurrency world really started a long time ago. I was really active in the BBS scene uh, back in the early 90s and uh, taught myself how to code. Uh, during you know, C, uh, ANSI C, Turbo C, uh, on the World War IV BBS software, and was really, really drawn into the way in which we were able to communicate with each other. And at first, our reach was uh, bounded by who we could make a local telephone call to. Uh, and slowly, networking protocols were developed that were largely stored forward, but these allowed BBSs to, to expand their reach by essentially passing messages from one board to another. Still, you can get coast coast coverage, but uh, all through local phone calls. Um, so the development, the transition from the BBS sort of point-to-point -point world to the internet uh, was super exciting for me because here uh, the reach and the ability for people to communicate with one another and exchange ideas freely, uh, it was really a paradigm shift and it cracked my world wide open uh, several years before the rest of the world got on the internet. I believe that in order for the internet to really fulfill its purpose of connecting people and allowing them to freely communicate and express their ideas for the benefit of all mankind, that mechanism for exchanging value in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion without arbitrary censorship is of paramount importance. And so that's the backdrop uh, that basically got me interested in Bitcoin uh, back in 2011. Uh, and that's the, the journey that I've been on since then, which has brought me into uh, my involvement with the Zcash project, the Ethereum project, and uh, a number of other projects, but most recently, the Celo project, uh, which is where I met you. Yeah, thank you for that. It feels refreshing. And I think one of the things that, well, a couple of things resonated with me uh, when we first met. One is that we first met when my validator was down. It went down on a Saturday night 
and I had just come back from trying to keep my family safe out of New York, away from the pandemic for about six weeks. So unfortunately, some of my monitoring didn't go off. And as a result, when I woke up, I had some messages from people like you and one other person to alert me to that. And I really appreciate that and wanted to express my gratitude toward you for doing that because you know, what I've noticed is that there are people who will talk about this happening and there are people who will reach out to people to try and help. And you are one of the people to try and reach out and help. And I really appreciate that. And as we were working through that together, one of the things that I felt connected to you on was the fact that it came, or it felt like you came to this with a deeper sense of values uh, than some I've experienced in the in the early staking communities, particularly those who come come from a financial services background into the space. And now that I hear more about your story and how you became involved and interested in Bitcoin and ultimately Zcash, that just reinforces you know some of those earlier ideas and experiences I had uh, when we interacted. So thanks for that intro. I appreciate that. So going from there, when I think about Zcash, you know, I think of proof of work. So one of the questions that I was excited to ask is what enticed you or encouraged you to take a look at Celo and start to take a look at some proof of stake networks? To answer that, I need to back up a little bit and explain uh, what appeals to me about proof of work. So uh, the first sort of productionized proof of work that I was ever aware of was Nakamoto consensus, which is the proof of work behind Bitcoin. And the fundamental innovation here was the ability for a group of computers uh, to essentially agree uh, on how a, a ledger or a shared database should be updated uh, without any centralized party uh, being involved in that decision. And this was really groundbreaking from a computer science perspective. The ability for this to happen sort of an emergent, in an emergent way is really revolutionary. Um, so that, that, that cracked the world wide open. Uh, now, as proof of work evolved, in the beginning on Bitcoin, you could mine and contribute to the security of the network uh, with just a, a garden variety CPU. Any, anything you had lying around would be sufficient to meaningfully contribute to the network uh, and earn some, some rewards in the process. But as the popularity of the network increased, uh, eventually you had to upgrade and use specialized hardware in the form of GPUs. And these were uh, much more powerful. And, and this was my own, this was when I made my entry point into uh, proof of work mining on Bitcoin. And the reason for this was that I was running a security consultancy, consultancy at the time uh, that did red team penetration testing. And as part of that, uh, we would essentially be paid by organizations to assess their security, uh, to break into their organizations and see what sort of valuable information we could, we could exfiltrate. And frequently this would include password hashes. Uh, to crack these password hashes, we'd throw a lot of compute cycles uh, at them to, to brute force them. Uh, and GPUs were very well suited for this purpose. So we had a lot of GPUs in the shop, uh, but we didn't always, there were a lot of times where we were between engagements. And so we said, well, we've got all this power, what should we do with it? Uh, so we did SETI at home, we did protein folding, we did what, you know, cracking uh, RC4 for, as part of distributed net. Uh, but not long after that, our attention was, was turned to Bitcoin. We found we could actually mine Bitcoin with our idle cycles and uh, contribute to the network and be, be rewarded for that. Uh, but as the Bitcoin network became more popular, special 
purpose hardware was introduced uh, in the form of ASICs uh, that could do that far more efficiently than we could do it with, with GPUs. And eventually we were pushed off the network. And I think at that point we started mining Ethereum instead of Bitcoin. Um, but I think a lot of folks talk about ASIC resistance and talk about the need to maintain the ability to mine uh, proof of work algorithms with general purpose hardware. And I think that's actually unachievable. I think after a network achieves a certain amount of success for as long as it's profitable to develop special purpose hardware uh, to mine those, those tokens, the market forces dictate that that will happen. Uh, so if you have a project that is successful and that is sort of the, the, the biggest uh, project using that particular algorithm, ASICs will be developed. Uh, they may be developed in secret, which isn't super savory, but eventually they will become generally available. Um, so I think the, the appeal of proof of work is that it should allow for fair distribution, at least initially. Uh, over time, I think the amount of capital required to purchase this special purpose hardware may raise the bar above a threshold that starts excluding people. And we don't ever want to exclude people's ability to participate in a network. Um, now, tying it back to your question about proof of stake uh, and cello, I think that the appeal of proof of stake is just really plain and uh, it, it's obvious for anybody that cares about the environment. So you always hear about, wow, we're consuming all this electricity to mine Bitcoin. Uh, and you think about all that heat and you think about all that energy, could that energy be used for something more meaningful? And there are people that believe that all the energy that's used to mine Bitcoin is, is not negatively or not adversely impacting the environment. I am not one of those people. I believe that uh, proof of work mining does contribute to global warming. I believe that it does have an ecological impact that's undesirable. And that's what, that was really the, the thing that pushed me to start investigating proof of stake networks. Uh, from a, a fairly early uh, point. One of the, the networks that I like that's doing proof of stake uh, and proof of work together in an interesting fashion is Decred. Uh, so Decred, the developers of Decred, the project leaders came from the Bitcoin community. Uh, they had created an alternate client called BTC Suite, I believe, um, that was a native Golang implementation of Bitcoin D. Um, but they, they encountered a lot of political resistance to basically innovating Bitcoin. Bitcoin is highly ossified. We've seen this uh, over the, we've seen this evolve over time with Bitcoin ver being very resistant to change and ultimately fragmentation occurring uh, because Bitcoin developers don't want to change. Um, so the Decred developers went off on their own. But an interesting uh, innovation that they developed was this hybrid consensus that they uh, they implemented based on a specification that was first defined in a, in a white paper for the Memcoin 2 project. Um, and I don't know whatever became of Memcoin 2, but the appeal of this hybrid consensus is that it, it basically uses a combination of an ASIC optimized proof of work in combination with proof of stake. Uh, so I've been stake mining on the Decred network now for uh, a number of years. Uh, I have no interest in operating ASIC miners on the network. I'll let the folks that, that are into that do that. Uh, but I am able to meaningfully participate and contribute to the health of the network, the security of the network, uh, essentially by staking my tokens um, and using those to do what they call voting tickets, which is essentially signing off on uh, blocks that are proposed by the proof-of-work miners. One interesting dimension to the Decred system is that 
uh, this stake-weighted voting system is also used to implement a form of on-chain governance. Uh, so I'm not going to advocate for on-chain governance as the ultimate uh, solution to governance in blockchain projects. I believe that there are a number of problems with on-chain governance, but I do think that the Decred project represents a, uh, a project that has innovated solidly in the areas of consensus by merging proof of work and proof of stake together in an interesting way, uh, and also in providing the, the folks that hold the tokens to have a voice uh, and expressing that voice by, by voting their stake. I appreciate that. There's a lot to get into there. Something you said earlier about your entry point into mining when you had those idle GPUs sitting around intersected in part with my own, I guess, evolution as well. And that once crypto caught my eye in late 2015, early 2016, you know, having the background I, I have, you know, as a system administrator, I was looking for ways to start to get my hands on and experiment with things and figure out how I could meaningfully contribute to the infrastructure at the infrastructure level. And by that point, I realized at least for me and for my resources at that time, proof of work, the ship had really sailed for me at that point. That's why staking caught my eye because I figured, okay, proof of work sailed. I actually proved that to myself by burning about $5,000 of AWS credits <laughs> that I really didn't have a better use for at that time. But it did, it really did put a fine point on the fact that, yeah, I think proof of work has sailed for me and what I was looking to do and the resources I had available to me. That's one of the reasons that proof of stake really caught my eye. And based on that, I've had a very high sensitivity toward proof of stake staying accessible to your point, you know, that we shouldn't exclude anybody and that proof of stake should be a, be an inclusive way to achieve consensus and a way for hopefully anyone with the dedication and interest and access to a modest understanding. Modest means different things to different people, level of resources to actively participate in securing the network. So coming with that perspective, what I saw in Cosmos, essentially when the network went live with stake centralizing onto the three top validators really fast, and then everybody looking over there and saying, wow, how did that happen? Started to scare me a little bit. And that's why I started the early forum called Staking Defense. And this podcast is an offshoot of that. But since then, maybe it's because of this high sensitivity I have toward keeping things fair and equitable and inclusive. What I'm seeing so far is that this trend towards centralization continues. So I'm wondering from your perspective with considerable experience in proof of work and now proof of stake, based on the structure of a proof of work network or proof of stake network, the economics, the incentives, et cetera, do you feel that proof of work and or proof of stake have an advantage when it comes to attracting smaller operators? Meaning, you know, has the ship really sailed for proof of work or people wanting to get into proof of work as a smaller mining operator? And or is proof of stake a better opportunity? And do you think it'll stay that way? So I think you're, you've, you've hit the nail on the head as it relates to the ship having sailed for proof of work. Uh, unless you live in Iceland and are trying to heat your house by mining Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, I don't think it's, it's sort of ecologically defensible for a hobbyist to, well, economically viable nor ecologically defensible for a hobbyist to get in there. Uh, proof of stake is highly appealing because I think a lot of people, they've, they're hodling coins. They see the softness in the U.S. dollar and they, they question the, the monetary policy of other central banks. And so they want to hold cyber coins. Um, 
and they want to basically be able to earn a yield on those holdings, uh, similar to how you used to be able to earn a yield by depositing money into the bank. Um, so I, I think the appeal of proof of stake is, is apparent and, and obvious to a lot of folks. Um, I'm not trained as an economist, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. Uh, but I do think that on any network where the performance of the network is dependent on there being a, an, a fixed sort of low bound on the number of validators that are producing blocks, uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for independent operators to participate as block producers. Uh, so it's with a great deal of interest that I've been paying attention to the development of the Ethereum 2 uh, protocol. Um, and so the, the history here, I'm going to try to do it justice, is that Ethereum launched, I think, in 2016 as a proof-of-work uh, chain that, that brought the ability to do essentially arbitrary computation. It's got a Turing complete VM in the form of the Ethereum virtual machine um, and a much faster block time than Bitcoin. And fast forward four years and all the developers in the Web3 world are building on Ethereum, which is awesome. Uh, and that's, that's really cool to see. But the downside to this is that the network is congested. Uh, and the, the gas fees, gas is what's used to pay for computation on the Ethereum network, they're through the roof. And so you really, you're, people are really struggling right now to do meaningful computation or to publish dApps onto the Ethereum chain because it's congested and because the fees are sort of uh, inappropriate given the value of the underlying transaction. Uh, the, Ethereum, the Ethereum project basically asserted that they would be moving to proof of stake uh, and I think the original commitment was 2019, and that came and went. Uh, and there was a lot of disappointment, a lot of skepticism, a lot of folks thought, oh, this is never going to happen. Uh, but much progress has been made. Uh, there are, there's a multi-client testnet that's presently operating uh, on the Ethereum 2 network. Uh, that testnet is called Madala. Um, and the thing that is very appealing to me about this design is that at Genesis on the Madala testnet uh, for Ethereum 2, there were north of 20,000 validators. Uh, so if you compare that to other proof-of-stake networks that have like 100 or 150 or whatever, this is an order of magnitude, orders of magnitude larger uh, number of validators, block producers that can participate, and the network can still scale. Uh, now, folks will be quick to criticize and point out that Madala suffered some serious issues in the first week of its existence and the network was down for a long period of time. I get it. This stuff isn't easy. Computer science is hard. Uh, trying to achieve consensus on a sharded network with 20 some thousand participants. It's, it's a hard problem and there were issues, but I do believe uh, in Vitalik and the other engineers working on Ethereum 2. I think it will work. And I think that type of design where there's really a, an arbitrary number of an arbitrarily large number of validators that can participate uh, could meaningfully change the dynamics uh, and allow folks to participate in proof of stake networks uh, without needing to have an enormous amount of capital and without sort of crowding out all of the, the smaller players. All right. So two, two questions there to go into it a little bit more deeply. When I, when I think of proof of work, when I say it sailed for me, typically I don't have access to the resources to build a huge mining farm somewhere with access to cheap power. So to me, with proof of work, 
the barrier to entry is the, I would say the infrastructure cost. When it comes to proof of stake, I don't know that proof of stake has that barrier to entry. So thinking about these earlier networks that are usually coming online with around 100, give or take 25 validators, what do you see as the biggest barrier to entry for the smaller independent operators trying to break into these early smaller sets? And then from there, we'll transition into the difference between that and these other networks like ETH2 that will support thousands of validators, not hundreds. Sure. So for for independent operators looking at participating as block producers in proof-of-stake networks, uh, if they're able to get a seat at the table early um, and to to basically either be airdropped uh, or purchase stake at a low, a relatively low cost, uh, I think it's feasible for them to contribute and participate. Their ability to continue to participate, uh, I think, may be called into question um, just based on the 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 price of capital. Uh, they, I think they can quickly be crowded out uh, by other operators in the space that have larger stake. Um, but I, I haven't studied this at length. My my interest in proof of stake uh, to date has largely been from an R&D perspective, uh, less so from an economic or game theory perspective. So I think there are others uh, that have studied this in greater detail um, that could give you a more thoughtful answer. But the, the sense I have is that the, the appeal to me of proof of work is that it requires that you bring resources to the table that are extrinsic to the situation. So in the, in the an example of Bitcoin, you bring power. Uh, you know, in the early days, you just needed power and a CPU, and you were able to contribute. Um, in a proof of stake network, you need to bring resources to the table that are largely largely intrinsic to the ecosystem. And I do think that uh, that creates this perception that proof of stake inherently and always uh, leads to plutocracy. This this notion that the rich get richer and I don't know how that plays out. I don't know what the end game is. Uh, but I, again, this is part of what is so appealing to me of the decred consensus is that it requires a combination uh, of extrinsic resources in the form of power uh, and ASIC miners on the proof of work side of the chain uh, and intrinsic resources in the form of people that are long on the token. They're committed to locking it uh, on the decred network. You, when you want to stake on the network, you need to lock your tokens for a period up to 180 days, uh, which is a considerable amount of, of time to, to be uh, illiquid in that position. Um, but I, I really like what that project has done. Uh, and I still consider it to be an experiment. It's, it's uh, an experimental consensus. It hasn't been subjected to a lot of sort of academic or peer review, uh, but it has been live now on mainnet for a few years. And, uh, I think it's a it's a really interesting example. So coming back and, and, and hearing you answer that question leads me to believe then that a barrier to entry for smaller independent operators, both you know, to operate miners on a proof of work network or a validator on a proof of stake network is really access to capital. And that's a tricky one to get around. The question I think I'm starting to ask myself now is how do staking networks address that? How do they address this access to capital? Because it's not necessarily access to capital to purchase hardware in the proof of stake world. It's, it's access to the capital to purchase the stake, or at least to have the resources to attract the stake because certain networks you have to buy in at a certain level that can be 
cost prohibitive to smaller independent operators. Other networks in the approach that I favor is that you only have to attract a certain amount of delegation, which I feel is more accessible to a smaller validator operator that may not have the deep pockets to buy in themselves. However, at the same time, when you're running your validator, you're running your validator well, you're running a bootstrap operation, having the marketing to attract the delegation isn't easy either, but I do feel it's at least a step in the right direction. I had an interesting conversation with Vitalik, uh, the creator of Ethereum in Croatia at the, the Zcash conference. I guess it was two summers ago now. And my question for him was, I said, Vitalik, we've, we now have this light client protocol that allows folks to interact with the Zcash protocol um, from their mobile phones and, and transact privately in that way. But how do we incentivize people to run uh, infrastructure for these users to connect to? Um, and he said, well, that's easy. You just basically incentivize people by giving them uh, a portion of the transaction fees. Um, I thought about that for a while and it's, it's, that stuck with me, that, that architecture uh, where you have sort of a relay node um, and the, the client can basically pick from one of those at random. Uh, the relay nodes are incentivized economically to behave uh, honestly uh, and they interact with the light client and then broadcast a transaction to the network. Um, so I've been wanting to uh, build support for that architecture in the Zcash ecosystem for some time. And when I first started looking at the Cello project, uh, this is one of the things that jumped out at me was that they had built into their architecture and into their documentation uh, a mechanism by which the full node operators uh, could actually earn rewards uh, for basically acting as a relay node and allowing light clients to connect to them uh, and then you know, broadcast those transactions onto the network. So I think it's, it's likely that the block producing piece of the game particularly in networks where there's a fixed low bound on the number of validators that can participate, that will likely get crowded quickly by entities that have deep pockets, by venture capitalists that, that have uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management. They will likely, in the near term, be the majority of the block producers. Uh, but I do believe that there is still an opportunity for independent operators and for individual participants to meaningfully contribute to the network as a whole uh, by running these full nodes or relay nodes, uh, provided that the protocols are designed in such a way to give them a piece of the action uh, to reward them for participating in that fashion. That sounds hopeful to have other avenues to contribute to the infrastructure other than having to run one of the very small number of validators that may be producing blocks to your point. There's another project called the Pocket Network, P-O-K-T, that we through Chainflow have been supporting pretty closely that's also working to achieve that mission, which is to essentially reward infrastructure operators to provide access to the chain as well, where the, where the protocols may not have those incentives already built into it. So for example, one use case is to provide an alternative to Infura. So we're running a, a full Ethereum node right now. And while it's not quite paying the bills yet, you know, there's enough traffic to see that in the future, if Pocket gains traction, it could start paying the bills incentivizing more people to run this infrastructure that previously had been not incentivized, essentially. So I think that can be a more inclusive trend, as you mentioned it. Yeah, I think that's a positive development. I, I know along the way, people get, I've been really excited about Web3 and decentralizing the net uh, for some time now. But then you, you scratch the surface in a lot of areas and you find that 
there's this like thin veneer of decentralization, but behind it are huge uh, mountains of centralized infrastructure. So Infura is a great example. Uh, I was really pleased a couple of years back when Cloudflare spun up uh, some Ethereum infrastructure and some IPFS infrastructure to help break that out. Again, Cloudflare is a big public company, uh, but it was it was really cool to see them lean into that and start supporting that. But I think if we're really going to succeed at decentralizing the net, there need to be meaningful meaningful incentives. Uh, such that folks that are online ephemerally, uh, their nodes or laptops can basically join the network, expose some compute or network resource, some storage resource for a short period of time, uh, but in a way that allows other folks to benefit and also allows the operator to to be uh, rewarded for that. I'd love to see that that architecture evolve. Yes, and it still surprises me in a way that when people refer to any of the big cloud providers, AWS, GCP, or I guess even DigitalOcean to some extent, that in a lot of ways, it feels like people default to these centralized infrastructure providers without necessarily giving it a second thought in this world that we keep calling decentralized. So what you said there about this massive centralized infrastructure essentially underpinning what we hope to be a decentralized, unstoppable set of networks really still has some pretty centralized points of failure. Yeah, it it sure does. And I, I have to admit that the power of the public cloud should not be underestimated. So uh, I've been working in the security and DevOps world for a long time, and I've seen the infrastructure as code movement develop and become mature. And the tool chains there uh, are pretty damn robust. And the ability for you to, with one you know, command, spin up a massively complex multi-layered infrastructure, uh, run it for as long as you like, tear it down, uh, without touching anything, without worrying about the underlying physical infrastructure, I get the appeal. And I don't think that's going to go away. Um, so I do think when we see Amazon lose an AZ uh, or Google have similar trouble, we'll see a lot of trouble uh, near term uh, in, in the validator community. Um, but I don't think that's going to go away. Uh, I think rather than pushing people to run bare metal, what makes sense is to reward validators for load balancing across uh, multiple regions and AZs within the big three cloud providers. Uh, Because going back to bare metal, it, wow, do you sure incur a massive cost uh, in terms of not only capital, but operationally doing things on bare metal is just so much more difficult uh, than it is when you can interact over APIs to to cloud providers and run sort of uh, self-healing, self-aware networks. It is, and especially from a smaller independent operator perspective, it makes the barriers to entry so much lower. And if you're lucky enough to get credits, that's also really attractive. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a paradox. Yeah, but the credits are a gateway drug, though. Uh, the, <laughs> the credits get you in the door. Uh, they get you to basically write some tightly coupled code that that spins up your infrastructure on their cloud platform. Uh, but then the credits go away. Uh, often your utilization increases. Uh, the interesting thing is the pricing tends to decrease over time, uh, but it it can you can quickly find yourself locked into a, a cloud uh, provider, and moving can be more trouble than it's worth. So there is a centralization hazard there. Yes, I'm thinking also of the perspective of a really talented DevOps engineer who wants to start to look at running a validator on the side. You know, maybe living in a, a somewhat of an economically challenged country. You know, they're much. It's much easier for them to spin up a free tier of an AWS, an AWS instance on a free tier, 
and start to get their feet wet than it would be to deploy a bare metal server to some data center somewhere is what I'm the perspective I was considering. And along those lines, I guess in a related point, there are a couple other questions I was hoping to get to. The first is there seems to be a debate, and I first heard this about a year ago. Are there a hundred qualified validators in the world or are there thousands of qualified validators in the world? And I, I think that's an interesting debate. People coming from a, a cosmos mentality tend to think the number is a hundred or less. People who support ETH2 and other networks tend to think they're thousands. I'm curious what your what your take on that, or maybe it's not even an inaccurate or, or fair question at all, but I wanted to throw, throw that out there. How many, how many qualified validators are there out there and does it really depend on some special skill that an operator has or is it a combination of skill, determination and tooling essentially to make it happen? I think there are thousands. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with some really world-class DevOps people over the course of my career. Uh, at the end of the day, I think running a, a mainnet validator on a production proof-of-stake network is really all about DevOps. It's all about security. It's all about monitoring and alerting. It's all about automation. Uh, and you need to know just enough about the cryptocurrency component of that um, to properly manage keys uh, and to uh, to understand how to like cash out enough of the rewards to cover your, your OpEx expense. Um, but for sure, thousands of folks have the DevOps and security chops to do that. Uh, I think the folks who tell you that there are only room for 100 validators, uh, maybe the staking requirement at that point is just too high. The staking requirement in terms of the amount of stake that you, that you have to have bonded. Yeah. The capital you got to put forward. I, I know a lot of awesome DevOps people uh, that are interested in decentralization, interested in cryptocurrency, but a lot of them don't have millions of dollars to put at stake uh, to run one of these. And along those lines, since you you have experience in the proof of work world, you're you're looking at proof of stake. In my experience, well, I guess it depends on the perspective. But last year, when I went to some of the events in and around, you know, blockchain, what they call Blockchain Week NYC, Stake Cosmos had launched about a month and a half before that, Tezos a few months before that. So there was a lot of interest in staking. And pretty much, I'd say every event that I went to was predominantly attended by people coming from the financial services industry and very few people coming from what I would call the crypto side of things. And of course, part of that's influenced because this is New York and there's a huge financial services industry here. But that also, I, I haven't I've also seen this progress through a lot of the networks that I've participated in, and it seems to be a financial services mentality first, crypto second. I'm wondering if, if you've noticed any of that or in comparison to the, the types of people that you've run into in the proof of work world running miners, have you seen, I guess, have you seen any differences between the types of people and organizations running validators versus miners from the perspective of coming at this from a crypto first perspective and some of the values that that usually carries with it versus coming at it purely from a Silicon Valley financial services, business first, dollar first perspective? Yeah. On the proof of work side, uh, I don't know a lot of miners uh, that mine sort of at a professional industrial scale. Um, but those that I do know and do keep in touch with tend to come from a sort of systems administration, systems engineering background. Uh, these are folks that probably ran data centers in a previous life. Um, and they basically built a business around 
uh, mining Bitcoin and other proof of work algorithms. Um, the staking world, I am not as familiar with. Uh, I do see Silicon Valley money coming into it. Uh, I do see a lot of interest from financial services. And this is interesting because for a long time, financial services, traditional finance ignored crypto. Uh, uh, I think Jamie Dimon famously said that he would never touch it. Um, and then like a year later, JP Morgan was, was building Quorum and, and a bunch of other really interesting uh, blockchain technology launching their own token for internal settlement. Um, so I think Wall Street and finance as a whole has now accepted that uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is an unstoppable force uh, and that they better understand it and they better start learning how to interact with it because it's not going away. It's not a Ponzi. It's not a scam. Uh, and they have to, to wrap their heads around that. Um, and I think that's actually really positive for the community. Now, I will say that uh, I do believe that crypto, the cryptocurrency ecosystem uh, attracts parasites and it attracts charlatans. And these are people that I think see uh, this industry as a shortcut. They see it as a way to buy low and sell high and get rich without doing any work. Uh, and this was really brought into focus for me when Dave Portnoy went on camera with uh, Tyler and Cameron Winkle, Winklevoss like a week or two ago. And I, I, I think highly of, of the Winklevoss twins. Um, but I was really put off by the interview that Portnoy did because he got on with, with the twins and was learning about Bitcoin. But the very next thing out of his mouth was, hey, how do I create Davecoin and pump and dump? Uh, and to me, that's exhibit A of the type of behavior we don't want in this ecosystem. So whether you say like Portnoy, I don't even know his background. He, I think he runs a fund or something, but that's the kind of money and the type of attention uh, that we don't want in this ecosystem. So I, I don't welcome Dave into this ecosystem, but other Silicon Valley types, uh, other finance types, I, I welcome them wholeheartedly. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz is an example of a, a venture capital outfit uh, that has been really, really active in cryptocurrency for a number of years. And I give credit uh, to, to Ben uh, and to Mark, uh, the founders of A16Z, for really understanding early the disruptive power of, of crypto technology. Not just the currency dynamic, but the, the ability to transcend trust. That's huge, and they got it. And they've placed a number of bets uh, that I think have been really smart bets. They've They've backed Libra, they've backed Celo, they've backed uh, a number of other projects, many of which I, I think very highly of, and I welcome them into this space. Uh, similarly, on the, the other coast, uh, we've got uh, Placeholder, uh, which is Joel, Joel Monegra, Chris Berniski, um, and, uh, and some DNA from Union Square Ventures, which is one of the VCs that really made Web2 what it was. Uh, and what I like about the placeholder point of view is that, sure, they have to return capital to their, to their limited partners and their LPs are, are largely institutionals and they probably don't care a whole lot about whether or not we get our decentralized revolution. But I do believe that the partners at placeholder are very much aligned with the ethos of uh, breaking up this centralization of data, wealth, and power that Web2 has created. And... Uh, so I, I welcome folks like that into this ecosystem as well. Thanks for that. That helped expand my perspective. I had typically been thinking about the, the funds that then turn around and operate large validators and then end up controlling stakes 
of those networks. So that was the one one angle I was looking at. And then the other angle I was looking at, but maybe not so directed toward. Well, let me let me chime in on that. I don't have sure like perfect clarity on who's doing what uh, in that area, but I will say that A16Z, for example, has a significant stake in Maker, and there was some controversy when they took that position. Uh, it's my perception that they've been relatively hands-off from a governance perspective uh, in the Maker ecosystem. Uh, similarly, it's my understanding that Placeholder uh, leans in and helps projects that they, they take a position in. So I know that Placeholder has materially contributed to improving uh, the ecosystem in the Decred community. Um, and I know also that Placeholder was pretty vocal and constructive in their interactions with the Zcash community uh, when the Zcash community was figuring out the future of funding for that project. Um, so I think that's another example of A16Z and Placeholder being good community members and good role models for how uh, venture capital investors should behave in this space. Now, I'm sure there are a number of examples of venture outfits coming in and misbehaving in the space or maybe taking a shorter term view. Uh, it could be the case that venture investors basically run a bunch of validators and receive a bunch of rewards. Uh, but by crowding out other independent validators, they're decreasing the total potential value of that network over time. Uh, I don't know that to be the case, but I do think that's a hazard of, uh, of venture investors running validators on these networks. Is If they're doing that, who are they crowding out? What centralization risk does that create? Uh, and does that centralization impact uh, in a negative way the overall value of the network? And if so, over what time horizon? I don't know, but it is, it is possible. Right. And I appreciate that more well-rounded approach than I think the one I'm, I'm holding in my consciousness right now. And then finally, along those lines, when it comes to investing, one of the things is a smaller independent operator that I struggle with is the concept of taking on investment to expand because one, there's the control issue. Do I give up control? And then two, is it really possible to find the right investor who, upon making an investment into say an infrastructure company that's operating validators that won't actually compel me, for example, if I took that investment into trying to grasp every single of delegation, every single token of delegation that I can in order to maximize the investment to its full potential. So that's, that's a paradox that I've been thinking about. You know, are there actually investors out there who will invest in smaller validator operators yet not compel those validator operators to chase every coin of delegation that they can get their hands on? Yeah, I've, the, I've founded businesses where we thought about taking venture money and didn't. And at the time, that was the right call. Uh, I founded businesses where we did take venture money and it worked out. And that, that was the right call. Uh, generally speaking, the rule around whether or not to take venture money uh, is, can you use it to meaningfully scale your operation? Uh, and sort of change its trajectory in a material way? Uh, and can you bring on an investor that represents smart money, meaning that they're bringing value to the organization that exceeds uh, the size of the check? They're bringing uh, a, a network of contacts, they're bringing relationships, they're bringing uh, perhaps technical or operational insights that you didn't have within your organization previously. Now in crypto, uh, I think those, those principles still apply. 
but the mechanisms by which you can provide ownership interests to investors in crypto, I think are a little different than they are in traditional uh, venture capital investing in private companies. So I'd, I would say, I believe the answer is yes, uh, but I would encourage you to be patient and to be thorough uh, in making sure you've got strong ideological alignment with an investor prior to uh, taking them on board as a partner in your business. Well, thank you for that personally. I appreciate that. And I hope that helps other smaller independent operators who may be thinking about the same question. And with that, unfortunately, I think we're at time and we'll probably have to wrap up. But thank you very much, David, for this conscious and insightful conversation. I really appreciate it. I wish we had more time and maybe we can schedule a part two down the road. But for now, thanks a lot for for taking the time to join. Yeah, thanks a bunch, Chris. This has been really fun. And uh, I look forward to, to chatting with you again here sometime soon. This episode of the Staking Defense podcast is a wrap. This podcast is sponsored by Chainflow and Staking Defense. You can learn more about Chainflow at chainflow.io slash staking and continue the discussion at forum.stakingdefense.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of this podcast in about a month. Subscribe at stakingdefense.substack.com so you don't miss it and join our Telegram community at t.me slash staking defense. Again, it's t.me slash staking defense to keep the discussion going. Until then, keep stake decentralized.